Okay, we're sitting here, legs up from the bottom of Yudgimel Mudbet. The Gemara here is continuing to darshan the Pim that are found in Perigimel Vester with regards to Imam Melech Tov, Ikatev Labdam. Aman is petitioning Achashverosh to wipe out the Jews, and if the king is on board for this, that he should write a decree to wipe them out. And I'll pay you off 10,000 blocks of silver. I will pay to those that do the work on behalf of me to put into the treasures of kings. So he's paying off the king. He's bribing the king to take care of this matter. And then it says, The king took off his ring. He handed it over to Haman. The money is yours. And you can do what you like or what you please with the nation. The Gemara is going to dash in these series of Tsukim as it has been doing until now. That Haman was going to pay money to annihilate Klalisel. Therefore they gave their Shkalim before his Shkalim. Behind with it's not, and that's the Mishnah that's found in Shkalim. And on the first of Adar, Beitin sends out the Shlichim of Beitin to inform the people that it's time to give the Machatzita Shekel to the Mikdash and to take out the Kilayim that's found in the ground. Now this is based on the fact that the budget year for the Mikdash starts on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So the Chachamim, a month before the budget year starts, went out to collect the Machatzita Shekel from Klal Yisrael. And so therefore the Machatzita Shekel, not only in chronologically time-wise, it preceded that of Haman, but even in a given year, since the Annihilation was supposed to take place later in Adar. They did their collections on the first of Adar. It's as if Hashem knew in the future that Haman was going to pay to annihilate the Jews. If he had the Shkalim of the Jews, proceed that. Now, why is that important in this context? Because you know that the message of the Machatzita Shekel is that no person is whole and that we need to bond together. And so the message of the Machatzita Shekel is that we have to have Achdut. And what Haman claimed, as we saw at the end of yesterday's daf, was that the problem with the Jews was that they were Amechad Mifuzar Mifurad Ben Amim, so that they were dispersed and there was no Achdut between them. And therefore the Shkalim, which represent Achdut, were the power that Klalisel has to override the Zerat Haman, which spoke about them as not having that Achdut. That's one thing. The Aral has a beautiful thought here as well, which is the fact that the Shkalim pay for the Korbanot in the Mikdash. As we know from the beginning of Ayikra and the Ramban there, HaKarvata Korbanot is as if the individual is being placed on the Mizbeach. It's as if they're giving up their life to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. If that's the case, then the paying of the Shkalim to bring the Korbanot is as if the Jews already sacrificed themselves to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. If that's the case, then they no longer belong to anyone else, and therefore it can't be that Akashverus was selling the Jews or the Jews live to Haman because he was not the owner of the Jews anymore since they already sacrificed themselves to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Now it's interesting here that the Gemara quotes the remainder of the Mishnah which isn't relevant to the story here that about bringing the Shkalim on Rosh Kodesh Adar as well as the second item which is Ala Kilayim. Is any significance to the Kilayim that's brought over here? So it's interesting that the Ion Yaakov mentions the fact that Amalek is a descendant of Yishmael and Esav because it came from Esav taking the daughter of Yishmael born out of that marriage is Eliphaz, and Eliphaz has a Pilegesh who gives birth to Amalek. And, and Esav and Yishmael are represented by Shor and Chamor, and therefore the Kilayim is the bringing of the Shor Chamor Yachtav, and therefore Kilayim is relative over here because Amalek is a product of that Kilayim. Yonatan Ibishet also adds on over here something interesting about why the 
two items are brought together because the machatzit shekel represents the idea of achdut that nobody's whole without the other. Tilayim represents that even sometimes two items that are seemingly similar cannot be put together, they have to be separated. And therefore he says that that's the message to Kali, so that there is a message of achdut. But Achtut doesn't mean no matter what. It's not such a principle or important principle that we overlook sometimes that there are Rishayim or people who are inappropriate to have Achtut with, and those are Kilayim, we have to push them out. Though maybe we could say in this instance, and maybe that was the message with regards to Purim, which is that's only when we're talking about internally in Klal But when we're facing an external enemy, then the only thing that matters is Achtut. And that was what was coming to offset that which Haman did. The Machatzitza Shekel alone was the item, the Achtut, that allowed Kali Yisrael to defeat Haman. Because when they came together, they defeated what he had said, as the Gemara in Tanit already says, that with regards to fast days and times of trouble, everybody has to be apart. And that's why the Torah has even a foul-smelling ingredient, because we have to include the Rishaim in the Tanit in order to beseech Hashem. And so too, when it comes to an external enemy, we have to include everybody. There's a importance to Achdut that might even override sometimes the differences that we have that exist when we don't have an external enemy. Mara continues with the next part of the Tzukin that we read before. Makes it sound like Achashverosh forfeits the money that Haman gave to him. He says, take the money and he can do what you want. Sounds like he doesn't accept the payment. I'm Rabbi Abba, Mashal, the Achashverosh Raman, the Mashal, of what Akashverosh and Ran Lamad Davar Domer, similar to the Shnei Bnei Adam. There are two individuals, one of them had a mound in his field. He had a depression in his field. The person who had the depression wanted earth to fill in the depression. So he was hoping to find somebody with a mound that could fill the depression. And so he says, I'll pay for this so that I can clear up, I can flatten out my field. Balatel, the one who has a field with a mound in it, I wish I could find someone who had a depression in their field that I could pay for, that I could unload this earth, this mound, and put it in them. At some point, these two individuals met up. The Balatel, the person with the depression, said to the one with the mound, sell me your mound. He says, take it for free. And I hope you can take it. Take it. I've been waiting all this time to get rid of it. Now finally I can do that. And so the same thing is true over here, that Achashverosh's sin'ah for Klal Yisrael was on par with that of Haman. And therefore, Hashverosh wanted to get rid of the Jews. Now he found someone who's willing to pay for that privilege of getting rid of the Jews. And he says to them, keep the money and just get rid of the Jews. That means that they were both partners or of a similar mindset of getting rid of the Jews. But the Khatam Sofer points out over here that there is a distinction between them. There is a tell and there is a Harit. And that the tell represents those that try to attack Klai Yisrael by elevating them and having them forget their mitzvot, throw away their religious beliefs. And so they want them to join society and they see their success as being either a problem or they see their success as something that they want to harness but get rid of all the trappings of their religious practices. On the other hand, a charitz is someone who sees them as putim, someone who sees the Jews as being downtrodden and unworthy, and also someone who wants to get rid of them by annihilating them. And so a chashverosh and aman were both wanting to get rid of the Jews, but from a different perspective. A chashverosh saw them as being very successful and great, and he wanted to get rid of them, but it may be in a sense of having them assimilate, and that's why he threw the party, as we discussed earlier, in order to have the Jews come and join the party, and therefore forfeit their religious 
rights or their religious beliefs, whereas Haman had a hate hatred for them about them being chutim or undeserving, and therefore he wanted to rid himself of them, he wanted to annihilate them. So then they got together, the Tel and the Haritz, and together they were able to agree or it would be a similar mindset to get rid of the Jews. So then we move on in the Pasuk, it says, that the king took off his ring, his signet, in order to give it to Amman. That the removal of the king's ring had more impact on Kalei Israel than the 48 prophets and the seven prophetesses that came to give Nebuah to Israel. None of them were successful at getting B'nai Yisrael to do tshuva. On the other hand, the removal of the king's signet, his ring, caused B'nai Yisrael to go through a major tshuva movement, as we know from the Megillah, because they then instituted fast days in tshuva. It says in the Megillah that the Jews undertake a massive tshuva movement in order to get the Kodesh Baruch to annul the decree of Achashverosh and the plans of Haman. Now, many of the Farshim point out over here, the Marsha and others, that the removal of the ring was the key element over here. That's because Achashverosh, as we noted before, was a flip-flopping type of king. He changed his mind all the time. And so therefore, until he took off his ring, they assumed that even though Haman's decree or Haman's efforts were going to annihilate them, they figured that the king might change his mind or something might happen to make it that it's not final. Once the king took off his ring, the king was no longer involved. He handed over that power to Haman, and now Haman could do as he pleased, and the king could not rescind it. As we see later on when he said, something that's sent out with the signet of the king cannot be rescinded. So therefore, the people at that point realized that it was really a final decree, and that they were going to be annihilated, and that's what causes them to do tshuva. And that's why the removal of the signet, taking it from a Cheshvesh and handing it to Haman, is so significant. At that point, there was no retracting or no rescinding of the decree that was going to be sent out. Now the Gemara wants to discuss the fact that it mentioned that there were 48 in a and seven Nibiot, Tanarabanan, Bema Brita, Arbaim Ushmana Nibiim, forty eight Nibiim, Meshev Nibiot, and seven prophetesses, and it Nabudahem, the Israel, had Nibuafaka Israel, Velopachtu, Velohotiro Mashakatu Batorah, they never took away, detracted from that which was written in the Torah, Lotiro, and they didn't add anything. With the exception of Mikra Migila, which was an addition. What did they darshin that allowed them to do this? What was the impetus? For allowing them to add something to the Torah, it says, "Amar Rabbi Chiyabavin, Amar Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha, Uma meabdut lechayrut." When it came from leaving slavery to going to freedom, meaning leaving Yitzchak Mitzrayim, Amrin and Shira. There we sang Shira. A question as to what Shira this is referencing to. Rashi says, "Yitzchak Mitzrayim was Shira leyam." Although the Torah even questions that and says that maybe it's better to say that it's really referring to the halal of Mitzrayim or leaving Mitzrayim, because otherwise the halal of Shira leyam might have involved Chayim and Mita. Because the people say, when they're standing at the edge of the Yamsuf, there are not enough graves in Mitzrayim that you brought us here to die, standing at the edge of Yamsuf with the Egyptians closing in on us. So that was also Mimita the Chaim. Therefore he says it must be speaking about the Halal that they sang when they were leaving Mitzrayim. So then the Mimita the Chaim, when it was a chance that we were going to be annihilated, and then God saved us and gave us back our lives, then certainly we should say Halal, or we should do something, to mark that occasion. We're going to discuss in the Gemara in a second how that works out. Why is it Mikrami Gila and not Halel? But the Gemara over here makes a statement which is important, which is that the fact that you're not allowed to add any mitzvot to the Torah. An exception to that rule is Mikrami Gila. So Rashi right away says, what do you mean? That's not only mitzvah de Rabbanan that was added on. There are plenty of other mitzvot de Rabbanan, and the one that he focuses on importantly is that of Hanukkah. 
It says, Vim Tomar Ner Chanukah. What about the fact that there's a mitzvah of Ner Chanukah? Kfar Paskua Nevi'im. Rashi says that wasn't in the time period or the era of the Nevi'im. Because when it came to the story of Esther and Mordechai, there the Megillah is written in a time when the Chagai Zechari Malachi are still extant, when they're still having Nevi'ah prophecies. So that's not true by Chanukah. By Chanukah time already, there's no more prophets that are left. Never, even though Ner Chanukah is similar to Mikra Megillah, in terms of a rabbinic institution. Nevertheless, it's different because it wasn't in the era of the Nevi'im. Now, that actually focuses on what is unique about Mikra Megillah, because Rashi compares it to Ner Chanukah. The fact is that both of these are mitzvot, where the Chachamim instituted to do something that has no basis in the Torah. It's not connected as a gzerah or a takana that is connected to some mitzvah in the Torah. It's a completely independent item that we are asking you to do. And that's both Mikra and Megillah and Ner Chanukah. And that's why they're singled out over here as being unusual mitzvot. Now, now this Gemara has some of the Geonim, like the Bahag and the Ratzag, who actually then count Mikra and Megillah as one of the 613 mitzvot. Because it sounds from here that they added on another mitzvah, and that is to be added to the Torah. And therefore they see this as being a Torah mitzvah. The Rambam, in his Hakdama, the Sefer Mitzvot, writes very strongly against those Be'unim. He's referencing to this issue of Mikra Megillah and other Dine Dirabonon that they include in the 613 Mitzvot. And that's one of his principles, that with regards to Dine Dirabonon, or institutions Dirabonon, they cannot be classified as Mitzvot Deoraita. And therefore, when it comes to Mikra Megillah, it cannot be counted as one of the 613 Mitzvot. Even if it's an institution of the Nevi'im, it's still not a Mitzvah Minat Torah. And that's, he comes out very strongly against the position of the Geonim. The Rambam believes that a Mitzvah Dirabanan can be added on as long as it's clear that it is called, or that it's an institution, the Rabbanan. If you institute something that's a Din Dirabanan and then make it look like it's Doraita, that's a problem of Baal Tosif. But if you make it clear that it's a Din Dirabanan, then that's not problematic. Ramban, there in his commentary, Harot on Shorish Dalet, challenges that and says that even a Mitzvah Dirabanan that is being Mosif al Torah can be problematic. And that's why over here they needed the Kavachomer. Kavachomer is what permits them to do it. That there's a halachic basis in the Torah that allows them to institute Mikra Megillah, and that's what allows them to avoid the problem of Baal Tosif with regard to the mitzvah of Megillah. Whereas the Ran disagrees with the Ramban on this point, and the Ran says that they only needed the Kavachomer for the writing of the Megillah, to make the Megillah something that was canonized in part of the Tanakh, that's what they needed the Kavachomer for. But in terms of the reading of the Megillah, a mitzvah like that, he says like the Rambam, that if it's clear, it's a mitzvah the Rabbonon, it's not a problem to institute. And that's why the Rambam says in Hilchot Yisrael Torah, that the problem with the Navi, to be mechadesh halacha, is that he's mechadesh halacha mikoach ha-nevu'ah. He does it through his prophecy, that's problematic. But over here, where it was a drosha, that's why it allows it to go through, which is that it's not based on nevu'ah, based on a drosha, using logical argument that allows one to institute it. There is also a Tosfodrid and the Spatanet says something similar, that with regards to Mikra Megillah, the unique aspect of it is its publicity or public nature. This is an institution, the Rabbonon, to go ahead and read something in public or do something in public. And that's something that was unusual and something that we don't see anywhere 
else, and that's what makes it unique in terms of the issue of Mikra Megillah. And that's how he differentiates it from other mitzvot der Abanan or other mitzvot of the Nibiyim that were instituted. If that's the case, that might be also why Rashi brings in their Chanukah, which is also a public display or something to be done in public, although it doesn't involve reading something in public, which is much more significant like Kriyata Torah. Now the Gemara asks, if there is a Kavachomer that says, just like by Pesach, there is a need to read Hallel, so too there should be Shira by Purim. So it says, Ihoche Hallel Nemenema. Why are we reading the Megillah? Why don't we say Hallel, like you say Hallel on Pesach? It says, if you ain't omrim Hallel, It's very simple. This was a miracle that happened outside of Eretz Yisrael. Since it happened outside of Eretz Yisrael, it doesn't qualify to have Hallel. It says, what do you mean? It's Yat Mitzrayim, which is the source for this, the Neis B'chutzlar, it's Hechamrin and Shira. That's the basis for this. Yitzhak Mitzrayim took place outside of Eretz Yisrael, and there we say Hallel. So why can't we, based on that, also say Hallel with Chutzlaretz with regards to the miracle of Purim? Kiritanya. Because the Brayta tells us there's a distinction. Ajlo Nichnusu Yisrael Laaretz. Four Klai Yisrael came into Eretz Yisrael. Hukshiru Kol Aretzot Umar Shira. All the lands were permissible to have Shira. Any miracle that took place, whether it was inside Eretz Yisrael or outside Eretz Yisrael, could be subject to Shirah. That's like Yitziat Mitzrayim. They hadn't entered the land of Israel yet. Therefore, it was appropriate to say Hallel on Yitziat Mitzrayim, even though it was in Chutz Laaretz. Mishinichnusu Yisrael Laaretz, lohukshuru kol aretzot umar Shirah. Once Klaiso came into Eretz Yisrael, there was no longer this permission to say Hallel on a broader basis outside of Eretz Yisrael. Only in Eretz Yisrael would be appropriate to have Hallel. Therefore, since Purim took place in Chutz Laaretz, does not qualify to have Hallel said. And that's why we don't say Hallel. We have a Shira, but the Shira is not going to be the Hallel, the same Hallel that we say by Yitzhak Mitzrayim, or any other time that we cite Hallel. The Marsha in Arachin, where they speak about the Inyane Hallel, on Daf Yud in Arachin, mentions that the difference is that once Eretz Yisrael was in Kadesh, then of course Baruch Hu has a Shkacha Pratid over Eretz Yisrael, and therefore the miracles take place with God's direct intervention. And if it's God's direct intervention, that's appropriate for Hallel. But things that happen outside of Eretz Yisrael only happen through an intermediary. Since they happen through an intermediary, they're no longer qualified to have the Hallel that's said. That's not true of Yitziat Mitzrayim, which God, of course, Baruch Hu says, that Anibat's me. I myself took them out of Mitzrayim, and therefore it's qualified for it to have Hallel even before they came into Eretz Yisrael. And that has to do with the fact that the Shekhinah Shorah in Chutz before Klal Yisrael go into Eretz Yisrael. Once they go into Eretz Yisrael, the Shekhinah resides in Eretz Yisrael, and therefore it's no longer relevant to have God's direct intervention in Chutz But well, we'll see, based on the upcoming Gemara, that maybe that changed after the Churban Abayit, which is of Nachman Amar, the solution to the problem is Kriyata Zoheleila, that the reading of the Megillah itself is Halal. So we do say Halal, we just say it through the reading of the Megillah. Rabbi Amar, thereby the case of Paro and Mitzrayim, we can say the Psukim and Tehillim that we use for Halal, which is Halal of Hashem. When we came out of Mitzrayim, we were once Abadim to Paro. Once we left Mitzrayim, we were Abadim to Hashem, below Abdei Paro, and no longer servants to Paro. But with regards to Achashverosh, can we really say after we were freed or saved from the annihilation that now we're Ovdei Hashem and not Ovdei Hashverosh, meaning that we were still under the auspices of the non-Jews or the foreign nations? We didn't have an autonomy after that, and since we didn't have autonomy, we don't have a right to say Hallel because we can't say Hallel Abdei Hashem. So that would be differentiated maybe from Chanukah, by where we do gain autonomy with the rise of the Hashmonaim, and therefore we can't say Hallel Abdei Hashem. And we can say the Tsukim of Halal that say that we are Abdei Hashem, 
no longer in the auspices of any other rulership. Well, here we can't say that we're halalu abdei Hashem and not abdei Hashverosh, because we were still under the rulership of Hashverosh at that time. And Agamemnon says, Ben the Rabba, Ben the Rabba Nachman, whether you have the reasoning of Rabba, which says that we can't say halal because it's not the appropriate language, or Rav Nachman, who says that the Kriyata Megillah replaces halal, Kasha, we have the problem, once you entered into Eretz Yisrael, remainder of the lands were not permitted to have Shira. So you see from here that the Gemara really has three answers to the problem as to why we don't say Hallel on Purim. It seems from the first answer that the Gemara gave, which is, we don't say Hallel, and there's nothing to do with Hallel on Purim, and that's because it does not qualify for Hallel because it's in Chutzlaretz. That was the first answer. Rav Nachman then says, no, we do have Hallel, but it's a different type of Hallel, it's Kriyata Megillah. Rova says, we don't have Hallel because we can't say Hallel Mitzri because it says, Hallel Avdei Hashem. And we're not Avdei Hashem and not Avdei Hashivrosh anymore. Therefore, it would be inappropriate to say the Hallel. It doesn't say that he agrees with Rav Nachman. It seems to indicate that he thinks that you would say some form of Hallel. And that's maybe even more important that Rova is a Talmud of Rav Nachman. That would imply that maybe Rova's position is not so differentiated from Nachman, but pointing out why we can't say Hallel, and we have to say Kriyata Megillah. So that's somewhat of a question between Rav Nachman and Rova, whether they disagree, or Rova's just giving another explanation for what Rav Nachman said. But if you say that they're differentiated, then we had three different answers. The Gemara is challenging Rova and Rav Nachman from the first answer, which was that you can't say Hallel in Chutzlaretz, and that's why we don't say Hallel. My answer is, on behalf of them, once they went into Galut, they went back to their original status, which is that we're allowed to have Hallel for salvation that takes place even in Chutz Laaretz. And what the Marshal points out is this is consistent with what we said before, that once B'nai Yisrael entered Eretz Yisrael, the Shekhinah was Shorah in Eretz Yisrael, but we also know that a Kosh goes into Galut with Kal Yisrael, because it says, Imo Anochi B'Tzara, or based on the Pasuk in Parshat Nitzavim, it says, V'Shav Hashem Lokecha Tshvutcha B'Richa Mecha, Shere Seh V'Hishiv Hashem, Hashem brings you back. What does it mean, V'Shav? means that Hashem is also returning with us, which means that the Shekhinah is with us in Galut. And if that's the case, then if the Shekhinah is in Galut, then that would also okay or green light, the fact that you could say Hallel on salvation that comes from Chutz Laaretz. Both Rav Nachman and Rava believe that you can't say Hallel. The question is, what type of Hallel you say? Rav Nachman says, Kriyat Leila. Rava doesn't necessarily offer an alternative. Maybe he's saying that you say Hallel without certain aspects of the Hallel, or is Rava agreeing with Rav Nachman? We have the original opinion, which said that you don't say Hallel. The Me'iri is quoted over here, who says that, based on Rav Nachman's statement, that Kriyat Megillah Zohe Leila, that means that because we have Kriyat Megillah, we don't say Hallel. What happens if someone does not have a Megillah to read? What would be the din? And so the Miri says, based on this Gemara, Kriyata Zuhalela means that it replaces Halal. But in the absence of Kriyata Megillah, one would have to say Halal on Purim. Now, this is discussed in the post-scheme as to whether this Shita of the Miri is kept the Halacha. The Birke Yosef seems to suggest that the conclusion is like the Miri. Although in the Shari Chuva and the Khatam Sofer, they both discuss the possibility that when we say Kriyata Zuhalela, means that there is no Halel at all on Purim, because the Kriyat Megillah is the Halel, and therefore there's no real institution of Halel, and therefore if you don't have a Megillah, saying Halel would be meaningless in that context. And therefore the Shari Chuba concludes that if you don't have a Megillah, maybe you should say Halel without a Brocha on Purim. Now, many, many years ago, two cycles ago, I sent out this Me'iri to some of the Magide Shur that were giving the daf 
the rights to Megillah. And one of the Megiddei Shira told me that he said over this Me'iri in the Shira, and there was a gentleman in the Shira who was a Holocaust survivor, and he said that when they were in the ghetto, they did not have a Megillah on Purim, and they wanted to celebrate Purim, and they asked the Rav what to do in the ghetto, and he said to them that they should say Hallel based on this Me'iri. And so he said that's what they did in the ghetto in the Holocaust, where they didn't have a Megillah, that they actually read Hallel on Purim like this Me'iri. So it was an amazing thing that they actually, in practice, how you'd think, how do they ever have a case where they don't have a Megillah, here was an instance where they had that problem and they passed them to them to say the Hallel. Now, Rav Hutner in the Pachat Yitzchak discusses why he thinks fundamentally or philosophically that the Me'iri is incorrect about his position. He says that the Me'iri sounds so compelling, this idea that Kriyat HaZu and therefore it should be that you should be able to say Hallel instead of Kriyat HaMegillah if you don't have the option for Kriyat HaMegillah. And the Pachat Yitzchak, Rav Hutner says that that's not true. That's because the nature of the Hallel for different types of salvation is different. The reason that you read the Megillah on Purim is because reading Hallel would be inappropriate. Hallel is something that's said over a obvious and overt miracle, like we say by Hanukkah, like we say by Yitziat Mitzrayim, like what you say by other instances of overt miracles. And that in Purim, as we know, was a Nesni star. And therefore the appropriate Hallel for a Nesni star is Kriyata Megillah. And therefore he says that, thinks philosophically the Miri is incorrect here, is because Kriyata Zuhalela is not saying that the Kriyata Megillah replaces Hallel, but rather the Kriyata Megillah is the Hallel of Purim, because it is a type of Hallel that is a covert type of Hallel. It doesn't have the Shem Hashem in it. It's a story where you have to piece it together to see the Yad Hashem. And so the Hallel of Purim has to match the salvation of Purim, and therefore it's only appropriate to read the Megillah on Purim, it's not appropriate to say halal because it's not the proper shira that is in consonance with the type of salvation that is brought. So now the Gemara goes back to discuss what was mentioned in the beginning of this Brayta, which is the fact that there are 48 Nevi'im and 7 Nevi'ot. The Gemara says, Vituleka, are there no more than these 55 prophets? So the Gemara says, doesn't it say in the first Pasuk of Shmuel Aleph, by regards to Elkanah coming up to the Mishkan, it says, Vayish echad mina ramataim tzufim, mehar Ephraim, Shmuel Elkanah ben Yerucham, ben Elihu, ben Tocho, ben Suf Efrati. So the Gemara says about that, the drosha is, what does it mean, ramataim tzufim? Echad mimataim tzufim. It's one out of 200 tzufim, which is a term to describe a Navi, someone who sees, someone who's able to have vision into the future. Shinit Nabulahem be Israel that gave prophecy to Klal Israel. Some point out that the reason that the Gemara Darshans this is because of the plurality of Ramataim. We say later on that Shmuel is from Harama. So why is there Ramataim? So that's what generates the the drasha. Others speak about the fact that the Resh, or you split the word into Resh and Mataim. So Resh represents two hundred, Mataim represents two hundred. So that's how they know it's one out of two hundred. Sofim Ephraim. and so that's how the Gemara gets this drasha. But it's clear from this that there are 200 Nevi'im at that time period. And so why is the Gemara here, or the Bright, is saying that it's limited to these 55 individuals? My answer is, There were many more prophets that prophesied to Klal Yisrael. There were many Nevi'im amongst Klal Yisrael, many prophets, more than double the Tzio's that left Mitzrayim, the 600,000 left Mitzrayim, that could be because of this statement of Chazal, that Rashi Chalayam, Mashalo Yerah Yechezkel Ben Buzi, 
be that the people leaving Mitzrayim had exposure to a Kodesh Baruch Hu on the level of the Nivuah of Yechezkel. So they were Nivim, that's why they used Kiflaim Kiyotzi Mitzrayim. Could have been at Mamad Har Sinai. But there is plenty of Nivim that we see mentioned, even in Shmuel himself, and later on in Sefer Melachim, it talks about the schools of the Nivim. There were plenty of Nivim that are around. So then why is it limited to these 55 that we mentioned here? Any nivua, any prophecy that was relevant not only for its generation, but for future generations as well, that was written down, and that's what's found in the Nevi'im. That which was not needed wasn't written down. That doesn't mean that there weren't other people prophesying. There weren't other prophecies that were taking place. They just weren't written down because they were relevant to the time. But they weren't relevant to Dore Dorot. They weren't an eternal message that needed to be written down. And therefore, the supposition here is that the 55 Nevi'im that were being read here had a message that was relevant for the generations, and that's why they are found, these Nevi'im, in the Torah and in the Nevi'im, in order to pass on their message to us, to eternally, because that's what was special about these individuals. Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmani Amar, Ramot, has an alternate explanation of the Pasuk, that might take away the problem, at least with regards to that pasuk, which is that Elkanah came from two mountains, or two high points, that looked one at the other. And that's what it means, Ramataim Tzofim. Now, as far as the count of Nevi'im, it's very controversial. Rashi over here brings down a, in the Bahag, that it's from Seder Olam. He has this following list. And then Rashi lets out 46 Nevi'im. And he says, I'm missing two, and I don't know who those missing two are. I don't know who to fill in for those missing two. And then you can see in the note on the side of Rashi that he says that it could have been Odeda Navi and Hanani that were the two missing Nevi'im that gave Nevi'im and are mentioned in Divrei Hayamim. On the other hand, if you look in the Rebbeinu Hananel, he brings a different list of 48 Nevi'im, which is different than what Rashi brings over here. And then you have in the Gota Gro over here, he notes that Rashi's list that says it comes from the Seder Olam, says if you look in Seder Olam, it doesn't mention some of the people that Rashi mentions, including Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Eli, Shlomo, Neriah, Machsiah. They're not mentioned as Nevi'im. And he says that in place of those, and he gives a list of Nevi'im that are filled in to replace them, and he says that it seems to be that the Memchet Nevi'im, Rakachar, Mot Moshe. Only the Nevi'im that are counted after the death of Moshe, Af Shibneviot Hashiv. Even though by the women prophetesses, we do count them even when they're before Moshe Rabbeinu. Nevertheless, if they were before the time of Moshe, they're not necessarily counted as part of those lists of Nevi'im. And Rashi points out that some include in the list Daniel, like the Rabbeinu Hananel, which Rashi says is incorrect because we just saw the Gemara earlier, that Daniel versus Chagai Zechariah Malachi, the difference between them was Daniel was able to see the vision, which they weren't able to see. But on the other hand, they were Nevi'im, and Daniel was not a Navi. So Rashi says he wasn't a Navi. How can you count him in the list? So that leads to controversy as how exactly to construct this list of 48 Nevi'im. Is it just someone who's mentioned, or is it someone who's mentioned and has a Nevi'ah that's written, or is it someone who's mentioned and has, we're going to see in a second, their father is also mentioned, so that makes them into a Navi. Is only someone who has a message that was given to someone else that's considered to be a Navi. All of these factors play into who you count, and that's why there's numerous lists of who is included in this list of 48 Nevi'im. And look at the Rishonim Achonim on the Daf here who try to come up with a list that's consistent with some sort of principles of who are these 48 Nevi'im. So now another drusha on the Pesach, 
is brought here by Rabbi Chani and Amar, Adam Abam Ibn Adam, Shomdim Olam. He's descendant from people who stand at the heights of the world. Uman Nehu. Who are those? Bnei Korach, the children of Korach. Dichtiv, there's a strange pasuk that's found in the end of Sefer Bamidbar that says, Uvnei Korach lo metu. The children of Korach did not die. That's very difficult because it says with regards to Adat Korach that the earth opened up under them and they and all their possessions and all their children descended were swallowed up by the earth. And therefore, if it was the children of Korach, that the pasuk there seems to indicate that they died along with Korach. So how could it be that Bnei Korach lo metu? So they bring a Brita that explains this, Tana Mishum Rabbeinu, There was a place in Gehinom. And as Rashi says over here, that Nitbatser is a high place or an outcropping that was there in Gehinom that kept them high up. That's what it means, Birumoshel Olam, that they were high up and they were held up. They were able to grab onto that or stay on that. Begehinom Bamdualab, and they were able to stand on it. Or you have to say that the fact that they were saved indicates that they must have done something that puts them high up because everybody else got swallowed up. And the fact that they were saved in that situation where everybody else was swallowed indicates that they must have done shuva that brought them to the heights of the earth, and therefore, they are considered to be unique or special. That's what the Perikantilim says, that the Bnei Korach sang a shira to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And we know from the lineages in Divrei Yamim that Shmuel was a descendant of Korach. And so Elkanah, who's Shmuel's father, obviously was also a descendant of Korach. And that's what it means. It's somebody who came from these places on the great heights, and the only way Korach could have descendants is if his children survived, and that's what it says, B'nai Korach lo metu. That means Elkanah was a descendant of those children that did survive and that were standing at the heights. Now the Gemara says, Sheva Neviot Ma'an Nihu. Gemara does not enumerate the 48 Neviim, but it does enumerate the seven Neviot, the seven prophetesses. It says, Sarah, Miriam, Dvorah, Chana, Abigail, Chulda, Ve'ester. Now it goes through each one of them. Sarah, how do we know that she was a Neviah? Tichtiv, who was Bataran, was the daughter of Haran, the brother of Avram and Nahor. Haran has three children that we know about. He has Milka, Iska, and Lot, was Avram's nephew that he took. And they have Milka, who marries Nahor. And so the Midrash assumes that Iska was synonymous with Sarai, and therefore Avra married Sarai, and here it's explaining why she was known as Iska if her name was really Sarai. The Amar of Yitzhak, Iska zo Sarah, that Iska is a reference to Sarah, and the Valamani Krashma Iska, why was she called Iska if her name was Sarah? She sachta beruach kodesh because she was enveloped or covered in ruach kodesh. Shinamar, and now they bring a proof text to this, because that might not be enough. Ruach HaKodesh might be distinct from Nevoah, and that's some of the distinctions that the Mepharshim before deal with, with regards to the 48 Nevi'im, that even though someone might have Ruach HaKodesh, that might not suffice. You need Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah, and therefore the Gemara says, Shinamar, kol asher tomar alecha sarah, shma bikola, HaGadosh Baruch says to Avram with regards to Sarah, throwing Ishmael and Hagar out of the house, he says, listen to what Sarah says, shma bikola. And the Midrash Rabbah over there, it says about Bikola, which is an extraneous word, Bikol Neviut Sheba, in the prophetic side of her. And therefore we see from that, that Sarah had a form of Nevuah, Devar Acher, another drasha with regards to the Iskayas, Shakol Sochim Biofya, 
that the word Yiskar is speaking to her tremendous beauty, that everybody basked in her beauty, meaning that she was so beautiful that everybody wanted to get a piece of that or see that because she was so pretty. That might be another reason for her being called Yiskar. Miriam, how do we know that Miriam was a Neviah? That's because the Torah explicitly says she was a Neviah. It says, by Shiratayam, Miriam Aaron, Moshe. So the proof text is from the fact that the Torah says she was a Neviah. The Gemara here brings an additional part of this, which is found in the Gemara and Sota as well, a drusha which says that she was a Neviah, the sister of Aaron. And the Gemara says, wait, she's the sister of Aaron and not the sister of Moshe. She used to have prophecy when she was the sister of Aharon, and not once Moshe was born. And that her prophecy was limited to that period of time, until the time that Moshe was born. That's the drasha that they have on Achot Aharon, but that doesn't change the fact that she was known as the Neviah. So now what was the prophecy that she had when she was the sister of Aharon, and not the sister of Moshe? That implies that it had something to do with the birth of Moshe. And that's what the Midrash is explaining now. She says, She had a prophecy that her mother would give birth to the Savior of Klal And when Moshe was born, the entire house filled with light, an indication that the Shekhinah was present or that this was a, some special baby. Her father came and kissed her on the head, indicating that her prophecy had come to fruition. That's also the Midrash that Rashi brings in, in Parshat Shmot with regards to the fact that she's the one who encouraged her parents to get back together. She said, your decree is worse than the decree of Paro. Paro only was gozer on the boys. You are gozer on the boys and the girls. And her nivuah, plus getting her parents back together, are what produced Moshe Rabbeinu, the savior of Nivuatech, That you are Prophecy came true. After they couldn't hide him anymore and they had to throw him out into the river, they put him in the basket and floated him into the Nile. The gears here is Avia. In other places, the gears is Amadima. Her mother came, slapped her on the head. Where is that prophecy that you said? Now we have to throw out. That's why it says, the truth is that the Pesukim never mentioned that it's Miriam. It just says Achoto. But we know of no other sister of Moshe Rabbeinu. So in all likelihood, it's referencing to Miriam. But why is she sitting there to see what's going to happen? She wanted to see what was going to come of her prophecy. I mean, that she had a vested personal interest in this because it was her prophecy that brought about the birth of this child. And now it seemed to be that it was going to go by the wayside. Devorah, how do we know that Devorah was in Nebiyadikhtiv? Because the Pesach explicitly says that, Udvora Isha Neviah Eshet Lapidot. Navi explicitly says that she was in Neviah, so that's how we know that. Now the Gemara is going to question the latter part of the Pesach, which is Eshet Lapidot, that she was the wife of Lapidot. That means that we are identifying her by her husband. As the Marsha points out, that usually that happens when the husband is someone who's more famous or more well-known. Over here it's just the opposite. Devorah is more well-known. So why would it say Eshet Lapidot? It doesn't give us any additional information about Devorah. And therefore the Gemara asks, My Eshet Lapidot, we can't take that literally, but rather, Shehaita Osav Pitilot Mikdash. That that was actually her profession, that she used to make wicks for the Mikdash. As Rashi points out over here, 
Mikdash does not mean the Mikdash because the Mikdash was not extant at the time that she was a Shofetet, but rather it was talking about the Mishkan. And in the Mishkan, she prepared the wicks and she used to make them extra thick so they burnt longer and brighter in the Mishkan. And that's why they were called Lapidot, torches, because they gave off bright light like a torch. And some suggest that that was a reward that her Nivu'ah or her being a Shofetet was because of her dedication to the Mikdash. So the Gemara does not take it literally, but rather figuratively, Eshet Lapidot, that that was her profession, or that's what she contributed to the Mishkan, not that that was her husband. He Yoshevet Tachat Tomer, and says that she was sitting under the palm tree. Maishna Tachat Tomer. Why did she sit directly under the palm tree? Amr Rabbi Shimon Ben. The way we have in our Gemara is Avshalom, but you can see here in the Masoda Shas, he notes to go to a bunch of Tosafot throughout Shas. They change it to Avi Shalom because the Tosafot says we don't name after Rishaim. Since Avshalom was a Rasha, we wouldn't have someone who's named after Avshalom. And therefore the name must be Avi Shalom. So he says, Amr Shimon ben Avi Shalom, Mishum Yichud. Problem of Yichud, because she was a Shofetet. And Rashi over here says, Yichud, Shehu Gavoa, Vein Lotzel. A palm tree is very tall, doesn't cast much shadow. And it doesn't have low branches, which could create a, simulate a area of privacy. Nobody can have yichud with her there, as opposed to when they're in the house. So from Rashi, it sounds like that people were coming to seek her counsel because she was the shofetet, and therefore sitting under the palm tree allowed her to be in a public sphere and not have problems of yichud. The other hand, Tosafot over here says, they were coming to her to be adjudicated, which is raises the issue that Tosava raises a number of other places in Shas, which is how is it that Devorah was a Shofetet? We know that a Shofet can only be a Zachar, can only be a male. And how was it that a woman was a Shofetet of B'nai Yisrael? And here Tosava seems to reinforce that idea that the reason that she sat under a palm tree was so there would be no yichud when she was adjudicating. So some point out that if she was adjudicating, didn't there need to be other members of the baitin? Because nobody's allowed to judge alone. They have to judge with a baitin, which is three, and then there wouldn't have been an issue of yichud. So the Baliatosvot and other places with discussing this suggests that the reason that she was able to be a shofetet was for one of two possibilities. Either because it was a dispensation from a Baruch the fact that she was a Niviyah, and the fact that she was a shofetet gave her an exceptional status, and that's how she was able to be shofetet. Although they lean more heavily in favor of saying that the reason that she was allowed to be a judge is because of the fact that they accepted her upon them. In essence, they made it into an arbitration rather than an adjudication. If that's the case, they were doing it as an arbitration, just like they accepted her to be the judge in the case. They could also accept her to be the judge alone in the case. And therefore, she was judging alone. And that's why she had to be careful in order to be in a public sphere so there'd be no yichud, even though generally when you have an adjudication, there are two parties there. But if the parties are pritzim, or if you have to look at the parties as if they're guilty, Maybe that would not prevent the problems of Yichud, and therefore she did it in an open area. And according to Rashi, it's just simply because people come to the Shofet, to the Shofet, to sing counsel, and therefore she had to be in a public area so there wouldn't be an issue of Yichud, or there wouldn't be any suspicions or rumors that circulate about her behavior because of people that are coming to visit her. Another thing is, just like the palm tree only has one heart, as Rashi notes over here, that the sap of the palm tree only runs up and down its trunk does not run into its branches, opposed to other trees where the sap runs up and down the trunk and into the branches, or basically a palm tree does not really have branches. It has the main trunk, which is what grows, and then it has the kapot marim or the lulavim that grow at the top each year, and then they harden and they can be cut off, 
and that leaves the palm tree to grow higher and higher because of that. But those branches don't extend other branches. They don't become like sub-trunks to the tree as opposed to other trees where a branch, it itself grows bigger, and then it can produce other branches from it. And so that's the idea that a palm tree is really just a single column or just one heart. And therefore, So too, the people of that generation only had one heart to a Kodesh Baruch Hu, in that they weren't worshipping Avodah Zarah, and that during the time of Devorah, she was able to get the people to focus on Hashem, and she is one of the earlier Shoftim, that is mentioned in Sefer Shoftim, who have success with keeping the people in line, having them worship a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and they, they themselves are also people of stature, of quality, versus later on in Sefer Shoftim, where you have questionable Shoftim, and also questionable behaviors by the people. Chana, how do we know that Chana was in Nevi'ah? Dikhtiv, because it says in Tfilat Chana, the beginning, to my heart exalts a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And then, Ramah Karni, I held my horns high to Hashem, or it might be representative of the fact that she has triumphed with a Kodesh Baruch Hu, that she's had their child. And the puzzle continues, I'm able to now celebrate or gloat over my enemies. Because I now can celebrate in your salvation. That's with her altercations with her co-wife, Penina. And so this is the beginning of Tefillat Chana. And as Tabali Tosfo point out, the entire Tefillat Chana is a prophetic vision that the Chazal interpret to be speaking about many things in the future. The Gemara just brings the first Pasuk as representative of the whole Tefillat Chana to indicate that she had prophetic vision. And that is Amar Yudav Because it says here, Ramah Karni, below Ramah Pachi that my horn was raised high, but not my pitcher was raised high. And there the Gemara makes a point, this is brought with regards to the sugyot, about Simona Milto, that sometimes signs have impact, that is David and Shlomo, Shinim Shechu Bekeren, David and Shlomo, whose anointing was done through a horn, Nimshecha Malchutan, their kingship had longevity and was lasting, Shaul Ve'yehu, Shinim Shechu Bepach, they were anointed with a pitcher, their kingship did not extend or have a longevity to it, or did not have a lineage that went on forever. And most of the Mepharshim point out the difference between a pach and a karen is the ability for this item to survive, which is that a pach is made out of cheres, is made out of clay, and therefore it can break or shatter, and it's not hardy, which is man-made and can be easily broken, as opposed to a karen with something that's natural, and is very strong and everlasting, and that also is the sign of cornucopia. So it has that meaning with regards to a Karen, and therefore you see from here that she was predictive in nature that Ramakarni Bashem, that when the Karen comes up, that's something that's everlasting, that's something that has duration to it. And that's her son Shmuel anoints Shaul with a Pach, and his Malchut fails, and he anoints David with a Karen, and that his kingship is successful. Now the Gemara continues to darshan the Filat Chana, which it does also in the Gemara in Brachot. There's no one as holy like Hashem. There's no one like you. Don't say someone, no one like you, but rather lutecha, meaning someone who consumes or wipes out like you. God's behavior is different than humans. When it comes to human beings, 
their works outlive them. Meaning that if someone makes a stone sculpture or a great architectural feat, they can outlive them. God always outlives his creation, meaning human beings are mortal, as opposed to God who is immortal. There's no rock, no one solid like our God. And the Gemara Dashin's sewer, not as a rock or bedrock, but ain't sayar kelukeno. There's no artisan or there's no drawer like a Kodesh Bochu. Adam tsar tsura agabe akotel. A person can draw a picture of an individual on a wall. They can paint something. They can't then infuse it with life. They can't give it all the things that would make it actually something come to life. God, on the other hand, creates an image inside of another image, meaning a woman who is pregnant. And then they fuses life into that human being that's found inside of another human being. Again, it's talking about the greatness of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and here the Chazal are darshaning in the words those unique aspects of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Now, Abigail, how do we know that Abigail was in Nebiah? Dichtiv, this is the story in Shmuel Aleph where David Melech is on the lamb because Shaul is chasing him down. David Melech gets wind of the fact that Naval is going to shear his sheep and therefore David asks for help from him to supply his men. And David Melech is running around now as a leader of a band of ragtag individuals who are offering protection to people in that area. And David Melech feels like he's been protecting Naval and his shepherds. And therefore, he wants him to give him something able to feed his troops. And Naval turns him down. David sends some of his young men to give this message to Naval that maybe he could provide them with some supplies, some food. I don't know who this guy is. And they all want to get paid and they all want to get money. You're like extorting from me money. I'm not going to give you anything. So then David Melech says, Everybody get their swords, and we're going to go kill Naval and his people because they did not feed us. They were ingrates with regards to the protection that we provided them. Naval's wife, Abigail, gets wind of this, and she intercedes to protect her husband. It says, One of the young men told Abigail, what had transpired. And he rejected them. He threw them out. And now the Narb comes out with the truth that these people have taken care of us. They provided protection. They didn't hurt us. They took care of us while we were out in the fields. They were protection for us day and night. As long as we're out there, nothing happened to us. They were protecting us. Make sure that you take care of what you can do. Something really bad is going to happen to Naval. Because he was someone who was, was an ingrate. Or someone who doesn't accept authority from the people who are providing him protection. And therefore, you need to speak to him. And she takes a whole bunch of food supplies with her. And then she says, it says there, You guys go ahead of me with the supplies and I'm coming after you. She doesn't tell her husband, Naval, that she's doing this. She was riding on the donkey. 
She was coming down on the steeper side or the back side of the mountain. Or maybe it means a hidden part of the trail on the mountain. Or the Malbim suggests that it's a valley that's found in between two mountains. And that's the Seter Ahar, the part that's hidden by the mountains from view. And David and his men were coming from the other side, and she meets them. So then the Gemara says, it says, Why does it say that she's going down the Seter Har? It should say that she's coming down from the mountain. What's Seter? It has to do with the blood that comes from the hidden places. In that it's menstrual dam, menstrual blood, that Abigail was bringing, not la dam, heratado. She was showing him the dam to see whether she was classified as a nida or not. Like it says in the Gemara Brachot and Dabdalid, the David Melch says, Vani yadayim luchachot bedam letayar isha lebaala, that he was involved in marot dam. So marim dam balaylo. So sir, I can't look at dam by night because you have to have proper lighting in order to see the coloring of the dam. And so you're only allowed to see marot dam during the day. So why are you showing this at night? She said the same thing back to him. Are you allowed to adjudicate a capital crime at night? Here you're coming to kill my husband and all the men, and you're making a judgment about them and coming to kill them at night. You have to have a proper judgment for them, and that only can be done during the day. He says to her, He was a traitor to the king, because David and Melech at this point had already been anointed by Shmuel to be the king. It wasn't well known, and wasn't known to show, it may not even be known to the people, but he was anointed as the king. So he viewed himself as a king, and he says that if he spoke inappropriately or acted inappropriately, he's a morid b'machut, he's a traitor. And therefore he doesn't have to be taken to court. He can be killed extrajudicially because he is a traitor, he's a morid b'machut. And the rule, as we see in the Navi, with regards to a person who was killed because he was Moreh B'machot, that all his possessions go to the king. And so David Amalek is saying over here that I don't have to take him to a court case. Amalo, Adayin Shaul Kayam. Shaul is still alive. And therefore your fame or your name has not spread out. So her argument to him is that you have to know that Moreh B'machot only applies once you are considered or classified as the king. You're not classified as the king yet. You might be anointed, but you're not the king because a king, to be accepted as a king, has to go through different stages. One stage is the approval by God. That's the anointing. But it also needs the approval of the people or the acceptance of the people. And that hasn't happened yet. Tosfot over here is, is a little taken aback by the statement of the Gemara that with regards to Morid B'malchut, that you don't have to take him or you don't have to adjudicate the case. You can be killed extrajudicially. He seems to say that that's not true because the Gemara in Sanhedrin learns from the case of Naval that when it comes to a capital crime or a capital case that you start from the lowest member of the courts and he gives his opinion and then you move through till you get to the, the most senior member of the court to give their opinion when it comes to capital cases. And they learn that from Naval which indicates that they think that with Mori B'machut you do need to have a adjudication. Number two, Tosavot points out, is that a king is not allowed to sit on a beitin with regards to these matters, because it's not appropriate for the king to wait for everybody else to speak. That's not kvod ha-machut. Never a king should not be a judge. So how is David going to sit on the Sanhedrin or sit on the court that's going to adjudicate Naval? So Tosafot creates a in-between category, which is, You don't adjudicate him like any other capital case. 
On the first day, you have to do things that are positive or in defense of the person who's facing capital charges. And then on the next day, you speak about the things that are incriminating. But you have to do the schut first, the chuva afterwards. You have to let it wait overnight before you do anything. So all of those particulars with the capital case don't apply to Moreh B'machut, but you can adjudicate or bring the issues that incriminate him up on the first day right away, and you can deal with it on that same day. And therefore he claims that, Abigail's claim is that, how could you adjudicate him today? You have to wait till tomorrow in order to finalize the case. To which David Amel says, no, it's Moreh B'machut, I don't need the second day, I can do it all in one day, and finish it off at night, and kill him off here. But Tosavot is adamant that you have to have a adjudication. And with regards to the fact that David was the king, and the king doesn't sit on a court or a capital case, that's only because it's Nabonidah's kavod, because of the fact that he has to wait for others to speak. But in this case, where the case is about his kavod, then he will be happy to sit on the case, and he'll be happy to wait because he wants to make sure that this traitor is put to death and this problem is eliminated. And therefore, it would not be a problem with his kavod, because he's no geba davar here, and therefore he can sit on the bait in, even though if he really is no geba davar, why, how could he be a judge on the case? But Tosafot says there has to be at least some sort of judicial due process that's afforded to him, though he might not have all the trappings of a regular capital case. We didn't read all the psukim, where she placates him, they sent the food to help out his troops, and she pledges allegiance to David, then David responds to Abigail's overtures and says, That you stopped me or prevented me from today from spilling blood, and you brought salvation to me. So the Gemara wants to know, what does it mean, to be in blood? Usually when you talk about killing, that's not a terminology. Bobidamim is not a terminology for killing. So what does it mean come into blood? So that's what the Gemara says over here. That kilitina yomazimi bobidamim. Damim is in plurality. Tarte mashma means two things. So what are the two things? That she prevented him from killing Naval. And she also prevented him from sleeping with Nida. Which is the next part of the Gemara. Which is eliminated in the Girsa by the Gra. Amalameid shegiltai shoka. That she revealed her thigh. And David Melech, because of the light of her thigh from that exposure, was able to go Gimel Parsot. He tries to propose her to sleep with him. This is earlier on in the conversation. When Abigail's concluding her statements to David, it says, That this should not be a stain or a stumbling block for you, to kill innocent people, and then she says that you should do the right thing here, and Hashem should take care of you, and when He does take care of you, you should remember me. But she says, that this should not be a stain or a stumbling block for you, it says, there's something else that will be a stumbling block, and my ninu, mased batsheva, which will be a stumbling block. And the Gemara points out that she was right. She says, this will not be a stumbling block for you, but something else will be a stumbling block for you. And that was Batsheva, and there she was predictive in nature, she was prophetic in nature. And that's how we know that she was a prophetess. So Tosavot is bothered by the story over here. How could it be that the Tzadeket Abigail, who's a prophetess, is voluntarily and willingly 
exposing herself and not being tzanua. So Tosavot here, we mentioned it in the previous staff as well, and in up- upcoming Dapim as well, takes the Agadita very literally, and therefore he asks questions or halachic questions on the Agadita. And this is one of those times. He say, how could it be that she was exposing herself to David HaMelech? Therefore Yesh Lomar, he says that in other Sfarim, that are more Meduyakim, that word is not ora but maybe the ora or the oro, and therefore it was not something that was done intentionally necessarily. might have been something that happened accidentally. She was exposed. And what Tosavot says is that the lust or the desire for her was, was awakened or fired up inside of David Melech. And then when he went for three parts of away from there, that desire still remained with him. And therefore he propositions her, and she turns him down to say, this should not be a puka, this should not be a difficulty or a stumbling block for you. And the damim, that kilitani, is both that he did not kill Naval, his family, and all his workers. And the other damim is that she was in Nida, and that she doesn't allow him to sleep with her. And the truth is that maybe there was a bigger problem, which... The Gemara does not mention, which is that she was married to Naval, and she was an Eshet Ish. So that might go back to what we said before, that a Naval was a Moreid B'Malchut, who, when tried by the king, all his possessions go to the king. So David Melech might have thought, or might have assumed, that since he was going to kill Naval, or Naval was going to be killed for being a Moreid B'Malchut, all of his possessions, including his wife, would go to David Melech. Therefore, he was entitled to her, and there wasn't a problem of Eshet Ish. And that's what Abigail's response to him was, that, that might not be the case. It might be true with regards to his possessions, because his possessions are hefker, and therefore even before he's dead, if he's a Mori B'malchut, all of his possessions are yours. When it comes to a marriage, marriage can only be dissolved through a get or through death. And until he's dead, I'm still his wife, and therefore you cannot sleep with me, and I'm still classified as an Eshadish. That's a beautiful explanation that's brought by the Radvaz. Now the next line in the Gemara seems to be out of place, because it is connected to the story, but it has nothing to do with anything that we're saying here, which is, That's what Abigail says to David Melech that the nefesh of my master should be ensconced, or bound up, everlasting in the rock of life. The statement, the way Chazal interpreted it, means that there should be an everlasting connection with a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But that's what people put on a Matzeva when someone passes away, or they say when they passed away, which is that their nefesh should be united with a Kaddish Baruch Hu, should be returned, and have that everlasting connection to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. So why it's brought over here seems to be unclear, and that's what the Marsha says. Though some say that it's a continuation of that which was said before, which is the fact that this incident will not be a problem for David Melch, but he will run into a different problem, which is that of Batsheva. But then Abigail, again in a prophetic statement, says, Despite the problems that were going to arise from the incident with Batsheva, David Melch would do tshuva and remain the king, and he will be everlastingly connected to a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and therefore it's a prophecy that in the end that things will turn out okay for David Melch. When she was departing from him, Amrale, we read this before in the Psukim, that Hashem should be good to my master, meaning to David Melch, and you should remember me. Why is she telling David to remember her? That's the common colloquialism. A woman, while she chatters, while she converses, is knitting, sewing, weaving. Pilcha means a spindle, meaning that she's able to do two things at once. That means simultaneously, while she's doing her craft, she's also able to converse with others. Or Igadamri, another way to express the same thing is, Shavil Bazil Bar Abzo, when the goose puts its head down to look for food, it's Enoi Mitaife. 
its eyes are still floating above because the eyes of the goose are on the side of its head and it's a very wary animal because it's a bird looking for predators or animals that will cause it problems even though its head is down looking down it's still always looking all around and the same thing here with the guards to the nimshal the guards to Abigail, which is even though she was still married to Naval at the time she's looking out for her future so even though she was at the time protecting her husband and taking care of her family she put in a good word for herself in the future, which says that in the future, remember me. And that's what happens. David Amelf does remember her in the future and ends up marrying her after Naval passes away. And so the parables that are being brought by the Gemara are indicative of somebody doing two things at once. She's trying to take care of something, bless David and take care of her family now. But she's also at the same time looking out for her future. So now the Gemara moves on to the next Neviah, who is Hulda. And there it speaks about Kuldaz being involved in a situation where was in the 18th year of the king Yoshiao. Yoshiao leads a major tshuva movement. Part of the tshuva movement is to restore the Beit HaMikdash and to put it back into service. While they're doing that, they happen to find a sefer. They find a, a sefer Torah in the Mikdash. And then they read what's found in the sefer Torah. It says, He rents his clothing because, as Chazal say, the, what they read from was the Tochacha, that the people and the king were going to be taken off to foreign lands. And then he wants to know what all this means. Go find out what's going on. God's really angry at us. Because our forefathers, and all of those that came before us, were not following that was written here. So then it says, So now we know that she's a Neviah, because it calls her a Neviah. Eshet Shalom ben Tikvah ben Charchas Shomer Abigadim v'yoshevet b'Yerushalayim b'Mishneh. She is sitting in a special place in Yerushalayim v'yidabru alah. And they ask or they seek her advice with regards to what this meaning of this Sefer Torah is. Numari has a question. The fact that Chudaz Neviyah is explicit in the pasuk. Numari has a different problem, which is Makom dekai Yirmiyahu heicha mitna be'ihi. Yirmiyahu was a greater Navi than Chudah was already prophesying at that time, because we know from later on in Sefer Yirmiyahu that he's already prophesying in the time of Yoshiawa Melech, earlier on, from the 13th year of Yoshiawa's reign. And as we mentioned before, this is already the 18th year of Yoshiawa's reign. So how could it be that she's prophesying in that time period? She was a relative of Yirmiyahu, and therefore he wasn't Makpid. So we see that the nature of the Gemara's question is not that how is she allowed, but rather that it was not respectful, it was not proper conduct. If you have a greater Navi, that you should be prophesying or practicing prophecy in the presence of a greater Navi than yourself. Similar to the way where if you have a greater Posek or a greater Rav or your Rebbe lives there, that a person is not supposed to give Sakalocha when there are people that are greater than them or their Rebbe lives locally. So the Gemara says, okay, we understand why she was allowed because Yermiel kind of gave her permission because she was a relative. How come Yoshio forsake Yermiyahu, didn't send this to Yermiyahu, and sends the people to go to Chudah Why would you go to the lesser of the Nevi'im if you wanted to get the advice? 
So Amr Debe Rabbi Shila Mipnesha Nashim Rachmaniotem because women have mercy. Now women have mercy, it doesn't matter because this is something that's exeram etashem. So what does it matter that she has mercy? The Marsha says not that she would change the Nivuah, or not that she could change what would happen, but rather that she would have Rachmanut and Davin on their behalf to postpone or take away the bad decree that was being brought upon them. From Yochanan Amar, Yirmiyahu Loavahatom. Yirmiyahu wasn't available. Why wasn't he available? Shalach Lakzir et Aseret Shvatim. He went back to bring back the ten tribes that were put into exile by the kings of Assyria by Ashur. We know on Dadur. How do we even know that the ten tribes came back? Because it says in Sefer Yechezkel, and Yechezkel's Nevoah takes place between the Galut of Yechoniah and the Churbanabait of the Galut at Sidkiyahu. So in those intervening years where the Beit HaMikdash is still around, Yechezkel says, Ki el lo yeshuv. Someone who sells a field will not go back to return that field. The reason being is because the land's going to be destroyed and everybody's going to go into Galut. So the field will not be returned to him. But why would he think the field would be returned to him? That's based on the dinim of Yovel. By the Jubilee year, anybody who sold a field would return to the original owner. So what Cheskel is saying is that the Yovel will no longer be in practice because you're all going into Galut. Efshar Yovel Batel, Benavi Mitnabe'alav, Shivatel. Why would Yechezkel be predicting the cessation of the Yovel, if the Yovel didn't exist at that time. Why wouldn't it have existed? It was because we have a principle with regards to Yovel that says, the Chol Yoshveha. The Gemara Darshans, with regards to that, Bizman Shekol Yoshveha Only when all of Israel, or the majority of Klai are found in Eretz Yisrael, is there a practice of the Yovel. So that means from the time that Ashur already put the two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Ardain into exile, there was no longer any Yovel. And especially after the northern kingdom, the ten tribes were put into exile, there was no Yovel being kept. So how is it that Yechezkel is speaking about the cessation of the Yovel if the Yovel has been gone for hundreds of years from the time of Chizkiyahu HaMelech when the northern kingdom of Israel was already put into Galut? It must be that Yirmiyahu brought them back and since they were brought back, they were able to reinstitute the Yovel. Now, they did not successfully get to a Yovel because the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed before they even get through to the Yovel. There are only about 14 years left between the time that Yechezkel is giving his Nivuah and the Churban Abayit. So they go through two Shemitot, but they don't get to a Yovel. But nevertheless, the Yovel was in process of being counted. And who was the king of the ten tribes when they brought back? The Gemara says, Yoshiel ben Amon Malach Aleim. how do we know that he ruled over them? Because in this religious revival that Yoshiel leads, this Chuva movement, it says over there that he destroys all the foreign gods, the Bamot, the priests that are serving on these alternate, alternate types of worship. He kills them out. And then it says, And in the altar that was found in Betel, the one that was made by Yeravam Benavat, which is mentioned early in Malachim Aleph, when Yeravam Benavat breaks away and then decides to set up the Agalim, sets up one in Betel and one in Dan in the northern side. So there, Asher Chtit Yisrael, Gamet HaMizbech Ahu, Bet HaBaban Datatz, he destroyed that Mizbech and the Bama that was found there. Tzrofet HaBama HaDek LaFar V'Saraf HaShirah. He burnt it down to dust and destroyed it and the Asherah that was found there. Vayifen Yoshiyahu Vayarat HaKvarim Asher Sham Bahar. Then he sees all these burial plots in the mountain. Vayishlach Vayikach HaTatzamot Ben HaKvarim takes the bones out of these burial plots, he burns them on the Mizbeach in order to defile it, 
to fulfill the word of the man of God who said all these things would come true. And so Yoshiao asked the locals about this Andarta that was there for someone that passed away. This is the burial plot of the man of God that came from Yehuda. And he predicted that which you are going to do to this Beach in Beitel. That's the story with the Rabban Ben Avat that's found in Melachim Aleph, Perak Yud Gimel. And then Yerubam's arm freezes and he's unable to move. And then he predicts exactly what happens here. And he will sacrifice on here the priests of these Bamot, and he predicted this that it comes true. And the Gemara says about this whole story, What is Yoshiao doing on the altar in Beitel? Beitel is part of the northern kingdom. What's he doing all the way over there? Teach you that Irmiyo had brought back the Aserdashvatim, and Yoshiao Melech was the ruler over them. Because he was the only king that was left. And Yermiel brought him back into the kingdom of Yehuda. That's why Yermiel was absent. And since he was absent, that's why they went to do Chuda to seek advice about the Sefer Torah that they had found. Nachman Nachman says that they learned from here. Because Baruch is speaking Hosea about the fact that he's going to put the northern kingdom into exile. Because it says, Bebeit Yisrael ra'iti sharuriyah sham znut le'efraim nitma Yisrael. Speaking about the sins of Ephraim and the problems of Israel, the northern kingdom. Then it says, Gam shat katsir lach, shvutami. That even Yehuda will reap a harvest of you, b'shuvi shvutami, when I bring back my nation. So it's talking about the chait of Ephraim, meaning the northern kingdom that's sinning, and they're going to go into exile. And it says that Yehuda will reap the harvest when they're brought back. And so the Gemara interprets that to mean that they will be brought back under the auspices of Yehuda, that the return of the ten exiles will be connected to the reaping of the harvest of Yudah, meaning that they will be under the auspices of the kings of Yudah. Esther, how do we know that Esther had the Nevu'ah? It says that on the third day, after they were fasting, and Esther is going to enter Achach to beseech him on behalf of Klal Yisrael to save their lives, it says there that Esther got dressed in Malchut and royalty. You don't get dressed in royalty, other big gay Malchut me by late. You get re- dressed in royal garments. So why is it mentioning that she got dressed in royalty? She was enveloped or she was wearing a divine inspiration. It says over here that she wore. It says in Divrei Yamim, something that people are familiar with say, It says, That a wind, a spirit came over Amasai. So that's talking about something again, that's a... Ruach HaKodesh that came upon someone. You see the term Levisha is used to describe some sort of spiritual awakening and that was true by Esther as well. There are those that point out that it wasn't just Ruach HaKodesh but Nivua. 
And that, in the Marsha, points out that's because Malchut is the Sphira of Nivuah, and therefore she got a full-fledged Nivuah, not just Ruach HaKodesh. Or it's possible, as the Maritzchid points out, that the major proof that she had Nivuah is not from here, because here it's only Ruach HaKodesh, which as we pointed out before, it's different than Nivuah, and as the Maritzchid point out, that's why Amasai is not counted as one of the Nivuah, the list of 48 that we noted before. Before it's different than Nivuah, is from the fact that the Megillah is canonized, and that Esther and Mordechai wrote the Megillah, and therefore obviously she was a Neviah in order to be able to write such a Sefer with Ruach HaKodesh that was canonized as part of Tanakh. Now, Amar of Nachman, Haughtiness or power is not necessarily good for women. The truth is that the Gemara says this about men as well, which is that Yehura, which is someone who acts above their station, or is haughty, or lords over others, or is showy in nature, all of those are negative, but it's especially negative with women who are generally associated with sniut. So, Tarte Nashe, Yehora, and Habyon, there are these two women who acted in a certain amount of haughtiness, and their names are despicable. Chadashma Ziburta, one of their names is the bee or the wasp, which is Dvora. Chadashma Karkushta, which is the Chuda, or Chuda Neviyah. Ziburta, how do we see that she was haughty? She called for Barak to come to her. And she didn't go to him. So she acted in a haughty manner. When she responds to Yoshio Melech, she says, say back to the man, to say to the king. As the Marsha points out over here, it's not that their names were hated. Rather, their names were of animals, of something that should have made them more humble, or given them humility. Their names should have reminded them of that. And despite the fact that they had these names, they acted in a haughty manner. And therefore, that's the problem over here. Amar of Nachman, Chuda minei banav shal Yoshua ita. Chuda was a descendant of Yoshua. Tiv Because it says with regards to Chuda and Yoshua Melech sends his contingency to see Chuda gives the yichus of Chuda says that Chuda eshet shalom ben tikva ben charchas shomer abigadim. The Marsha makes the same point that he made before. Her husband's not famous. She's more famous than her husband. So why are they being toled in her husband? So there must be some drasha to this Ben Charchas, Tivatam. And it says, with regards to Yoshua, at the end of Sefer Yoshua, that he settles down in a place called Timnat Cheres. Although if you look there in Yoshua Chavdal Lamed, it says, On the other hand, if you go to the repeated story in Shoftim, Perak Bet, Pasuk Ted, it says, Vayipru oto b'gvul nachlato b'timnat cheres b'har Ephraim mitzvon har gash. So, in Shoftim, it's written timnat cheres, which is what's quoted over here. In Yoshua, it's timnat sarach, which uses the same letters, but it turns out to be a different name. Nevertheless, the Gemara here is focused on the Agadik, the of cheres. And so, the Gemara connects between these two words, ben charchas, or timnat cheres, that the two of them are connected, and therefore she was a descendant of Yoshua. Eitva Ravina Saba the Rav Nachman. So Ravina Saba questioned Rav Nachman's statement. Shmona Nevi'im Vehem Kohanim Yatsumi Rachavazuna. There were eight Nevi'im, eight prophets, who were also Kohanim that descended from Rachavazuna. Ve'eluhein. And these are they. Neria, Baruch. That's Baruch ben Neria, who's one of the assistants to Yirmiyahu and Avi. Zrayah Machseyah, who's his father. Sraya's father, Irmiyahu, and his father, Chilkiyahu, and Hanamael, who is the cousin of Irmiyahu, 
and Shalom, who is the father of Hanamael. So as we're going to see in the upcoming Gemara, when somebody has Yichus that connects them to another party, and we know information about one of the parties, we assume the other party is also that way. And since all these individuals were considered Nevi'im, their children or their father was also classified as a Navi. And we know Yirmiyahu is from Anatot, and all of these individuals are connected to Yirmiyahu in Anatot, which is an Ir Kohanim. So these are individuals who are both Nevi'im and Kohanim, and they descend from Rechav If that's the case, how could it be that you, Rav Nachman, are saying that Chuda was a descendant of, Chuda was a descendant of Yoshua Binun, if you're telling me that Yirmiyahu was a descendant of Rechav Av Chuda Neviyah Bimei Bnei Asher he says she was also a descendant, which would make sense based on what we said before, that Chuda was a relative of Yirmiyahu. That means that she was also a descendant of Rav Chav How do we know that's the case? Because it says here, Ben Tikva, which was again, Eshet Shalom Ben Tikva Ben Charchas. This is the description of her, Yichus, to her husband. Uchtivatam, in regards to Rav it says that Tikvata Chuta Shani, that she has to put the crimson string in the window to save her from B'nai Israel's destruction or conquest of Yericho. So Amr Leis, Rav Nachman says back to Rav Eina Saba, Eina Saba, the Amri law, and some say that he dressed him this way, Pacha Uchma, you darkened pot, which sometimes is used as a negative statement over here. It doesn't seem like that. It sounds like he's saying it positively. You're a worn from time. You're a wise man for your years, and therefore you're, you're dark like a darkened pot that's blackened by the flame that's been used a lot. Between the two of us, we get to the conclusion, or the proper conclusion. The Gaira, the Yoshua. Rachav converted and married Yoshua Binun. Since when did Yoshua have descendants? Vaktiv, in Divrei Yamim, when it has the Yichus of Ephraim, it says Nun Beno, Yoshua Beno. That's the way Divrei Yamim works. It says the Ben afterwards. Yoshua is the son of Nun, and then it ends. B'nei Lohavale. So Gemara says that in Divrei Yamim it ends there. So Yoshua doesn't have any descendants. It says B'nei Lohavil. He didn't have any sons, but he had daughters. And therefore, through his daughters, that's how we have descendants from Yoshua. So here, Tosfot already raises a serious issue, which is that Rechav part of the seven nations that were in Canaan. And therefore, she's subject to Lotechayet Kol Neshama. She got special dispensation because she saved the Miraglim that went there. Therefore, they didn't kill her. But how could it be that Yoshua married her? Because the Gemara Yivamot says that when it comes to the seven nations, even Begeyutan, even after they convert, they're Asur to marry them. So how was Yeshua able to marry her? So Tosfat says there's some that suggest that there was no love that Lotit Bam until they entered the land of Israel. And therefore she converted, or she was already loyal to Klal Yisrael before they came into the land of Israel. And then she wasn't subject to the issue of Lotit Chatein Bam. Tosfat says that's not true, because he brings the Midrash, that there were converts of the Nitinim, like the Givonim, in the time of Yoshua, in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe Rabbeinu made into Shovei Maim and Chotvei because they could not marry into Klal Yisrael. So you see, even in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, when they're in the Midbar, they don't have a classification as being those that are not considered of the seven nations, and they are subject to Lotit Chatein Bam. So Tosvet over here gives the answer that maybe she was not a member of the seven nations. She was a foreigner that had come to live in the neighborhood. And she was from a nation outside of the seven nations of Eretz Yisrael. And that's how she could be converted and then marry Yoshua Binun. Or the possibility that it was done by the word of Hashem. There's a, in the Sifrei in Balotcha, there's an indication that maybe she married Yoshua Alpi Hashem. And therefore there was an override to that din. It's also ironic that a Kohen who's not allowed to marry us from Rechav were born these Kohanim Nevi'im. 
which is an interesting in itself. says, The individuals themselves, we know that they are Nevi'im, because they are mentioned, as Rashi notes over here, because it says by Yirmiyahu and Hanamael, his cousin, that by Yavolei Hanamael ben Dodi, Kedvar Hashem. So he has a Nevuah. And Baruch and Sraya are Talmidim of Yirmiyahu. And Baruch, we also know Baruch Meneria, he used to mipiv, he cried Elu Advarim. And then I was writing down what he was telling me. So all of these individuals, we see that they are Nevi'im. And as Rashi points out right here, that the students of Nevi'im were also Nevi'im. Like the fact that Elisha, the Talmud of Eliyahu, was a Navi, or Yoshua, the Talmud of Moshe, was a Navi. So so too over here, Baruch ben Neria, Mishraya ben Machasya, Daniel, Mordechai, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, Kulam, Nitna, Bubishnat. So all of these individuals were considered to be Nevi'im. That's fine as according to them, but you mentioned in the list of eight Nevi'im, as we noted before, that their fathers are also mentioned in the list. How do you know that their fathers were Nevi'im? So the Lord says, Ula, that we learn from Ula, Kedamar Ula, Komakom, She, Shmo, Vishem Aviv, Vinivyut, anytime when his name is mentioned, and his father's name is mentioned, and one of them is mentioned as a Navi, Navi ben Navi. Then we know that both of them are Nevi'im. Shmo, below Shem Aviv. It only mentions his name and not his father's name, Navi, below Ben Navi. That he is a Navi, but his father is not a Navi. Shmo v'shem Iro mefurash. If it gives his name and the name of his city is explicit, like Yirmiyahu is from Anatot, we know that he's from that particular city. Shmo v'lo shem Iro. Then if it gives his name without indication what the city is, then we know that he is from Yerushalayim because when there's no indication, then the stam or the default city for Nevi'im would be Yerushalayim. But Nitatano, in a bright that we have, Koshimasav Umaseutav Stumim, in a situation where we don't know what his actions are, and the actions of his fathers are not explicit, and then one of them is mentioned positively, Kigon, El Ben Kushi Ben Ben Since we know about him, therefore it will be reflective on his parents and his grandparents if they're mentioned that they is a tzaddik. And the opposite is true. If you have people we don't know anything about, and it gives you a lineage, and then it tells you one of them was evil or problematic, we know that he's a evil person, the son of an evil person. He's the individual who comes and assassinates Gedaliah ben Achikam, the king of Yehuda, post the Churban Abayit. And that's what we have the fast day of Tzom Gedaliah for, is because of what Ishmael ben Netanya does. And so his negative actions, where there's yichus of him to his father and his grandfather, is implication that not only was he evil, but also his father and his grandfather were of the same ilk. Although the Rashash does point out that the Pesach says, Vayikach Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kahat ben Levi, that's the case, then then Korach's actions were reflective on Yitzhar ben Kahat ben Levi. Might not be that case because the actions of the other individuals are not stumim. We know something about Kahat, we know something about Levi, and they are have positive associations, a positive character, and therefore maybe Korach cannot override that positive character, and therefore maybe his question is not such a strong question, but it does come up in other places where we have individuals who turn out to be not so good. Okay, we'll stop here, 11 lines down on the top of Tedvav Amud Aleph.